Hello, thank you for listening to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast for this interview with Paul Gillingham on his book, Unrevolutionary Mexico. Thank you for joining us, Paul. Could you introduce yourself? Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So my name is Paul Gillingham. I'm a professor of Latin American history at Northwestern History and Northwestern University. Um, particularly interested in the 20th century and um, Mexico. Um, but enjoying at the moment um, my, my erudite colleagues from the 16th and 17th century. And so feeling fortunate to be in this field. Um, so I was interested in how you decided to focus on Mexico for your career. I know you started in the University of Oxford. So I was wondering what, what was the inspiration and connection to Mexico? Um, there's, there's several answers to that. Um, the first one is personal, that uh, my mother went to Mexico and drove around the country with two girlfriends in the early 60s, um, which gave me always the idea that Mexico was interesting and um, inspiring and profoundly different, obviously, from where I grew up in, in Ireland. And then secondly, Alan Knight is an extremely exciting uh, historian to work with. And so I went to his undergraduate lectures and then did an undergraduate thesis with him and then thought this is, uh, this is an excellent way of, of spending, spending time. And then last of all, I was lucky that Queen's College um, in Oxford gave me um, a small undergraduate grant to go and write that thesis. And then with huge optimism, Lever humor, I'd recommend anybody out there to check this out, um, are happy to just give um, slightly random um, undergraduates, so people who've just finished, um, grants generous enough to spend a year doing research and they're wholly open-ended. And so they gave, gave me one of those to develop my undergraduate thesis, which in the end became my first book, Guatemala's Bones, Forging National Identity in Mexico. Excellent. Um, it's great to know that, that background story, though. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about your book, its general focus and arguments. Of course. Um, so the book's called Unrevolutionary Mexico, and um, it took me a while to come up with a title that was pronounceable, because the last one had Portemoc in it, which is a guarantee of even lower sales than a monograph usually clocks up. And I chose Unrevolutionary precisely because it seemed best to encapsulate for me the pronounced dramatic shift from the 1930s and early 40s in Mexico to um, the early to mid 50s. It seemed to me one of those historical moments where, of course, you have longer term structures coming together to produce dramatic change, but also it's quite contingent um, on the decisions of a relatively small number of people, and also generally is sweeping. It affects almost um, every aspect of life. And part of it is um, connected to the post-war capitalist boom, but part of it is the very idiosyncratic development of Mexican politics. And so that's the intellectual side. Um, in personal terms, um, I was a uh, second half of the 90s in Mexico um, researching Guatemoc. And over the course of a particularly hungover breakfast, um, a friend of mine said, oh, so Paul, you know, what do you do? 
and he had some sort of fairly swish job in pipelines for Pemex, I think. And he too had a crashing headache. And I said, well, Giovanni, um, I, I study, and I was feeling quite proud of this, I study the story of a rancher in the middle of Guerrero who, who forged the tomb of the last Aztec emperor. And he paused and looked at me, and he took a swig of coffee. And he said, with this withering disdain, they pay you to do that. And I thought, well, well yes, actually, they do. It's, it's not like your salary, but they do. And he said, first of all, pendejos. And then he said, we're watching the pre fall to pieces around us, and you really have nothing better to do with your time. At which point, you know, I took this as constructive criticism, even if it was a sort of fairly uh, unusual way to it, and thought, okay, um, I'll do um, for my defil, I'll, I'll look at this period after the 40s, which back then we really didn't know anything about in historical terms. And there was this enormous disconnect between the pre we saw incompetent falling to pieces and plagued by lurid stories of assassination, incompetence, and then the generalized image of the pre back in the day as being likewise deeply flawed but functionally impressive. Um, of course, that story needed a bit of tinkering, but it was that contrast and that constructive criticism which pushed me to what I studied what on revolutionary Mexico is really about. So I was wondering why you chose Guerrero and Veracruz then to, as your you know, main focus in this book. That's a good question. And I want to write a national history because as I say, there wasn't really anything and that then leads you instantly to the methodological problem of you have in the time-worn but used because it's so useful phrase, many Mexicos, how on earth do you come up with some sort of defensible um, way of, of getting some representation? And of course, as historians, um, our methods are laughable to the rest of the social sciences um, never mind other disciplines, but we do what we can with the messiness of life and with empiricism. And so two states seem to be manageable in terms of um, serious research. Um, we were lucky that by that stage, the early noughts, there was a critical mass of regional history. And the previous generations had made really all Mexican history, regional history, but we're starting from scratch. Um, my generation starting in the North, we had more of a literature there. And so I started thinking, okay, what can be a vaguely defensible way of trying to talk about all of Mexico? And the only thing I could think of was the extremes. We'll go for two states whose um, social and political histories are really at the opposing ends of the spectrum. And while that won't tell me huge amounts about the center, it will at last demarcate the bounds of the possible. And there's that classic phrase from British politics, um, politics is the art of the possible. I hope that Guerrero and Veracruz would show me what the art of the possible was in 20th century Mexico. I wanted to go to talk about some of the terminology that you use in the book. In your introduction, you're quite critical of you know, the debates on some of these words. So I was wondering first, like what, what do you what do you think of as democracy? So 
in one of the, the parts of your book, you talk about how some people misuse certain terminology, which means that it's become taboo to use it. And then you highlight that places such as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea still use uh, the democratic word. So how, how do you understand democracy as you go through this, this, this work on Mexico, which you know, is a, a quasi-dictatorship, or as you call it, dictablanda? Uh, that's an extremely good question that, that really requires large amounts of coffee. But um, my understanding of democracy is fundamentally the liberal democracy that the political scientist um, Ronald Dahl called um, polyarchy, um, rule by the many, and rule by the many on a broadly level playing field, run through elections which lead to a um, regular um, alternation of power and in which you have, again, an polyarchy um, and extremely broad access to um, suffrage. And the fact that you have the Democratic People's Republic of Korea or the um, German, um, East Germany, as well as a host of political parties which claim democracy show just how central this is to the 20th century concept of politics. Everybody has to claim to be a democracy. More or less everybody does in our lifetimes. The gap between that rhetorical claim and practice and outcomes is what makes, I think, so much of our post-Cold War politics so interesting. And this is where, once again, I think Mexico is a pioneer in maintaining a convincing facade of democracy while ensuring that a single party at the most visible national level always won. And so I see Mexico as being 40 or 50 years ahead of what I call the hybrid regimes of the 90s and noughts. And democracy um, versus dictatorship, this was... Um, a long-standing emic debate as well. Uh, Mexican intellectuals and Mexican peasants argued over um, whether their political political um, sphere um, was democratic, was dictatorial, and hence, um, although it also has problems usage, I think the tablanda um, is about as good a one-word description of the pre as you can come up with. And as I said, I also believe, um, along with George Orwell, that you should name things, um, that precision opens you to criticism and debate, that this is what we're supposed to do. And I think to avoid classifying um, a, a country's political system is to avoid the possibility of some fairly useful um, chats. And how do you feel that Dita Blanda helps us understand uh, this time period in Mexico? Um, because um, the neologism does mix together with a sort of linguistic panache you couldn't do in English. Um, the idea of a dictatorship which has certain very important democratic in the sense of electoral representation possibilities. Um, as I say, um, I'll, I'll be delighted if somebody comes up with a better label and it has various problems, including 
and unfashionable um, origins in the, in the work of Enrique Krause, or rather in Enrique Krause's contribution to a key argument, but it seems to me as useful and precise as we can get. It certainly is a good and catching in. The only thing is when you have to explain it to non-Spanish speakers, at which point you're reduced to sort of drawing um, diagrams on a blackboard and then you start to see that this is in some ways narrowing your constituency mm. to Latin Americanists. But in 2021, that's a huge and exciting constituency. So I'm happy yeah. having them as the people who get it and then translating for the rest of the world. That's a good way for a linguistic immersion to yeah. encourage and expose people to, to other languages. Your title is Unrevolutionary Mexico. Why, why is it not revolutionary? Um, it's not revolutionary because the hallmarks of Mexico when it was revolutionary, and I think the, the revisionism of the 60s shouldn't lead us beyond the point that sweeping agrarian reform sweeping educational reform. Um, one of the most uh, progressive labor codes in the world, and what Sarah Austin has shown us, uh, a, a universal rhetorical commitment to socialism. All of this with really quite low levels of violence. This is revolutionary. Um, and I think on all of these um, benchmarks, Mexico from the mid 40s to the mid 50s changes radically. And the outcome, which I tried to symbolize um, in the cover, is not even the dream of a sweeping Diego Rivera heroic Mexican revolution, but in fact is a corrupt philanthropic ogre, in Paz's terms, sipping a martini in Acapulco. Um, so, I mean, you, you touched on it there, so 45 to 55, uh, Beatrice Magaloni calls it the golden parenthesis, in which was a term that you agreed with. So what makes it uh, this special period? Um, the special period is the, the generalised acceptance that the violence, instability and uncertainty of the previous um, years um, is, is gone and is traded against many people's actual conscious intention for this capitalist dictatorship. It's golden because you do have some spreading of, of, of new, new opportunities, but it's mainly because for a while the sort of priesta dream, the priesta PR that we have managed to, um, to stabilize Mexico, it, it has a certain degree of truth. There is a major drop in violence. Um, there is economic development in unlikely places like, for example, um, coastal Guerrero. Um, these are stories which you would, if you were covering yourself, spend several hours matizando. But essentially, this is as close to the priestas' projection of themselves as you can get. One, that's the golden part. The parenthesis 
is because the traditional idea was that you had a golden age of the pre, stability, economic development, lasting from 40 to 68, and it was a golden age. And that, well, no, it wasn't. Um, and increasingly, at one end, I define it to its starting point in 45, hyperviolent, poor, racked by um, labor um, mobilization, racked sounds there to a, a bad thing. It wasn't. It was actually a peak of labor power. And then we see increasingly that the 60s isn't about 68. You can um, see this authoritarian progression going back to the um, early 60s in places like Chilpancingo, which has its own massacre um, in 61. And so you're talking about a relatively short period of time that might be portrayed compared to what came before, what came afterwards as golden. And so I, I greatly admire Beatrice's work. I think she's a political scientist who brings sort of empirical richness to some exciting ideas. And this I thought was one of the better, one of the strongest ones. It's great to have some uh, people from outside the history field contributing to, to the ideas. Um, yes, so, you also claim that this is, uh, like in comparative terms, that Mexico starts off as, I think it was the 27th biggest economy in the world at the time, and then finishes in the exact same place. So that its development was actually equal to its peers during that period. So it doesn't really stand out. But at the same time, you claim that Mexico remains exceptional, despite this uh, like comparative positioning. So why is the history of Mexico exceptional? All right, that's an excellent question. Today, the first part, it's not exceptional in economic terms. And this is a classic example of Priesta spin meeting a certain parochial approach um, on outsiders' um, ability to judge it critically. The entire idea of the Mexican miracle is that Mexico is exceptional in the speed and quality of its capitalist development. No, it's not. The post-war period from the 40s through the early 70s was unparalleled and probably will never be repeated period of, of, of economic development. Mexico shared in that. Mexico had a couple of impressive um, economic managers. It had an impressive depth in its economists. But this did not mean that its developments were specifically different to anyone else's, which means that the Mexican miracle, the suggestions of something exceptional, just wasn't that miraculous. And on the downside, Mexico is one of the least successful countries of the world in actually distributing that growth. And so unfortunately, we don't have numbers for the beginning of the period the World Bank starts quantifying inequity um, in the late 40s and 50s. All we have is numbers for the end. And at the end, Mexico is one of the most inequitable economies in the world. And so that's the unexceptional bit. Mexico remains exceptional um, for political reasons. Mexico is the first country to create a hybrid regime where you have elections where you have civilians moving every six years at the national level, in and out of politics, with, and I would stress the relatively qualifier, 
relatively low levels of violence. This makes Mexico exceptional in Latin America, one of only two countries, I think, to avoid military dictatorship. It makes it exceptional at a global level because there is a relatively clear division between sort of Dalian democracies, some representation at a national level, and authoritarian systems. And it's not till the post-Cold War system, I'm sorry, period, that you get the explosion in these hybrid regimes. It looks like a democracy, it quacks like a democracy, but it is not by any sort of liberal democratic Dalian um, criteria. So Mexico is 40 years ahead of political modeling and that makes it exceptional. And the revolution makes it exceptional because the distribution of wealth or rather of land, not wealth, and the change in labor codes and the ambition for socialist education, nowhere else in Mexico, nowhere else in Latin America, mainland manages this, only Cuba in the entire region. So I'd like to, I've got two questions really coming out of that. I think I'll, I'll start with the, the end point or the second question, which is the, I have a natural pushback towards any claims of like, like exceptionalism. It's, you know, often not like verified for most countries, but there's an interesting uh, argument you have there. I was wondering how in the Mexican like historiography, the way that Mexican scholars really focus on Mexico specifically and oftentimes neglect the rest of Latin America. And then by a second consequence is they're also neglecting the rest of the world's history. How does that contribute to, to Mexico's historiography? Like, how did you engage with the rest of Latin America and the rest of the world when doing your research from PhD to, to now? Right, that is an extremely broad question. Um, to the first part of the, um, what you might call any parochial tendency in Mexican historiography, uh, the obvious answer is, well, you try it. You of course have. Um, Anybody else who's leveling that might not have. I don't think um, that historians of Mexico are parochial in terms of what they study. I think they can tend to be parochial in terms of who they speak to when they've done their studies. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need specifically between the North American and the Mexican Academy far more conversation. Um, the obvious corollary of your question is, why hasn't there been transnational approaches um, up till now? Well, because transnationalism is a relatively recent um, shift beyond the nation state, one. Two, it's extremely powerful within the academy as a way of appreciating history. And three, ironically, it can be extremely parochial because if it's difficult to understand even small pieces of Mexico, the idea that you can actually establish a reasonable grasp of Mexican history, a reasonable grasp of anywhere else, means in the end, actually, well, 
You can't in most cases, which means in turn that you're studying a series of relationships without great appreciation of the starting points. And this means in turn, that in some ways, deeply ironically, by not understanding fully either of the societies about which you're talking about. You're parochial. And so it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, and the only way around that I can see would be a, in, an institutional shift in the way we do history away from the individualism of the Anglo-Saxon Academy towards the more collective approach of specifically I think of the French Academy traditionally, where Michel Vouvel has 40 highly qualified historians working for him, a model with huge flaws, but also which enables a serious empirical, genuinely transnational approach to history. This is something which in turn is professionally impossible, um, the way we work now. Exploring the benefits it might have, including fewer articles to write, because the metrics would be different for professional advancement, quite like the idea, sort of strategic article reduction treaty, but this is a long way off topic. I just like to think it as I look at the amount of journals I have not read and think of guilt. That's a, a great answer. Uh, and I was struggling to work out how can I tease that out? Um, because yeah, I think it's an important thing to, to recognize. I certainly find it difficult to situate, for example, a history of Puebla within the history of Mexico, because as you said, the many Mexicos and the relationships that they have with uh, from Mexican states. So adding that global dimension or even the Latin American dimension alone just adds so much complexity and such a challenge to, to squeeze it all in. Yeah, and there is no easy answer um, because even if you choose either a narrow chronological period or a narrow thematic um, structure, you still face the problem that you really have an imperative to be as, um, to have as detailed a grasp as possible of two historiographies, even were it just the historiography of Puebla and the historiography of, say, um, a part of the Bronx where um, I, I taught for a while um, in, um, in um, the, um, the CUNY system, City University of New York, in the Bronx which was a fantastic experience. At one stage, with a class of 30 odd people, a majority came from Puebla. And I thought, okay, I will not teach Mexican history anymore. I will teach basically the history of Puebla. Um, and so this sort of specific migration really cries out for transnational approaches. Great challenges then generalizing for that, A, and B, starting with a really good grasp of both broader contexts. Um, but your problem is a grave one, and all I can say is good luck. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it must have been a big challenge for you to try and, uh, you know, accommodate that, that classroom. You know, it was, it was deeply enjoyable, um, in part because teaching the second half of the 20th century, um, it's not um, sort of feel-good sycophancy to say, I really learned a lot. They genuinely did teach me an awful lot. And so that was one of the, the, more, the more uplifting and enjoyable classes I've, I've ever taught. Um, 
and which I don't think anywhere else um, outside of Puebla, I could have got a critical mass of poblanos all in one place, undergraduates, to talk about Puebla um, circa 1950 to circa 2010. I was lucky. So I'm going to jump back to Veracruz now because we're moving away from Puebla. But so you highlighted that at the beginning of your period, Veracruz is one of the like, most prosperous parts of Mexico. But then Veracruz declines throughout the 20th century. And I was wondering how this connects with your... Uh, argument there of like economic success without redistribution. So does this period contribute to the decline of the state of Veracruz? Right, excellent question. Um, Veracruz, I chose as being the antithesis of Guerrero, wealthy, um, a winner at the national level because of course, um, Aleman, Auris Cortines, are both um, Veracruzanos and Aleman's power predates his presidency. And Avila Camacho has a ranch there. So, you know, there is this extraordinary, which is never to be repeated, single state dominance of national politics. We're fortunate in then as a starting point of the 20s and 30s, one of the best regional histories is specifically about Veracruz, it's Heather Fowler Salamini's classic about agrarian radicalism. And so we have a good grasp of the starting point, which is a powerful agrarian movement in rich lands facing some rich people who don't think it's a very good idea. By the 40s, you have a mixed outcome. There has been reform. There is a large pushback from landowners and mafia families which has led to a bloody stalemate. And this is one of the things that convinced me of the level of change of this period was the mythological version of Veracruz I had. Agrarian reform, instability, pact of the pre, land for demobilization. Well, it's just not true. And you could see straight away that in the starting point forties, Veracruz was extremely dangerous extremely um, unsettled, there was absolutely no Pax Pista. The economic development that followed is in large part because of federal support. Veracruz has no tax base whatsoever. Microcosm of Mexico? Absolutely. So the fact that it's a rich state doesn't filter down into road building schools basic infrastructure, drinking water. Unless you've got a Veracruzano in the presidency, at which point you start getting all sorts of really useful, if you're a local, but not top priority projects being built. And so this, together with tradition of economic success, together with resources, means that Veracruz is a place to develop, and it does. And it holds that through the 20th century. And the microcosm of the sort of tragedy of the 21st century is Veracruz's return from that into, um, if you're feeling conservative and depressed, the state of nature. And one story really sums that up for me, which is the Lagunes family, who I hope will not listen to this podcast, who are landowners from central Veracruz, going back to the Porfiriato, very good at violence, very violent, 
and through my period, promiscuously kill agrarian radicals or presidentes municipales who get in their way. This really is a mafia family. They reappear running the local franchise of a cartel in the last 15 years. And so you have history rewinding in terms of violence, danger. And the final irony is one of the reasons I chose Veracruz for research. I thought, okay, Guerrero is going to be quite intense. And there will be moments where, you know, it's going to be really tiring. You'll think about personal security because you're researching um, out in, in you know, some fairly remote bits of the countryside. Veracruz is going to be really chill. It's going to be really relaxing. And so it was in um, the early noughts. Um, at the moment, it's a toss-up to which um, state I'd go for a more um, relaxing experience. And the, the answer is tragically none of the above. There's an interest in a change up throughout the 20th century though. I'm gonna to jump to the some more personal questions here again. So am I right to believe that this book includes your original PhD, parts of your original PhD dissertation? Yes. Um, Specifically, the, uh, the database of the first half of the book, the um, well, the first quarter of the book, which is the baseline for my argument for change. So these are the regional histories of Veracruz and Guerrero, from 1880 through about 1940, the revolutionary period, because the Porfiriato is, of course, deeply revolutionary in its own terms. So those parts um, of my PhD, um, are the, this is where the PhD had the strongest influence. And the thematic chapters of the second half of the book um, on elections, two on violence and one on nationalism and one on that great question, why isn't Mexico a military dictatorship? And these all owe a lot more to my subsequent research. And one of the reasons I'm glad I didn't write this book earlier is because my colleagues' work and the new availability of sources have meant that those analytical, thematic uh, chapters are very different from what I could and did write 15 years ago. There's a long, long period from uh, PhD to publication then. This is one of the various ways in which I was really fortunate because, as you know, um, we collectively have guns to our heads to produce monographs. Um, and because of my undergraduate thesis, got them on bones, and that pressure wasn't there. And so, and I had uh, sort of sweeping imperialist dreams of actually doing a third state um, and bringing Chihuahua into uh, my overall scheme. Um, which I think in terms of representation would have made the very crude representation I'm going for um, a lot more, um, a lot richer, because the North is a different country. And Guerrero and Veracruz are bad samples of the centre and south, but the North is a different country. And I kept thinking, all I need is another year and I can bring Chihuahua to the same um, level. And couldn't, didn't, and probably for any long-suffering readers or even part readers, actually good news. I mean, potentially that's project, I guess. I'm enjoying looking at the North um, in the, the colonial period right now. Um, 
because of its frontier nature and because there is this slightly underplayed argument that Alistair Hennessy advanced, um, which took the frontier thesis of American history, which is fundamentally that the push west for resources and land forges this um, exceptionalist US culture. It is, if you caricature it, a kind of John Wayne approach to history. It's, it's easy to um, dislike or be unsettled by. Alistair Hennessy a long time ago said, yeah, well, you know, there's the Latin American frontier where we have the same story. And in Mexico, indeed, you do really see that. You do see expansion into the north drawn by minerals, then livestock, um, changing the entire country. And so I'm enjoying looking at the North right now very much because of that, that frontier thesis. And then as well, of course, there's good stories. So I was wondering as well, how did this uh, long period between the PhD and writing this book in its you know, final form, how did that period of teaching like, assist you in, in growing your knowledge and influence in the way that you wrote this book? Great question. Um, in part, one of the things I really appreciate about um, the American um, um, system of undergraduate teaching as opposed to the British is um, the, the breadth of ambition of teaching global history specifically. And so having said that, you know, you have to really, parochialism is forced upon us as Mexicanists to a certain point. I mean, it was only recently that one of our colleagues, Richard Salvucci, had the honesty to say, no, I have not read all of the decent books on Mexico, despite a long distinguished career, and neither do I expect to, and I regret it, but that's the way it is. Um, global history, it's worse, but that faint idea of context is so useful. I also think that the US Academy um, encourages um, broader thinking, because you start at a more general level. And in the final analysis, a lot of teaching, far more than in the British system, or in fact any other system, um, gives you training, which you won't see in this podcast, in trying to keep people's interest. And so my teaching, I think, um, was at the time, um, you know, at one point I was doing sixth class preps when I started off here, um, was hard work and you could see it as getting in the way of research. But actually, I really fundamentally believe in it. it does make you a better historian. And um, an old professor of mine in Oxford once said, well, I've been in an institution with no teaching, which is all souls, extremely elite. And I've been in a place where there is teaching undergraduate, which is Queen's. And I'd, I'd much prefer Queen's. And I feel much the same. I think that teaching takes our time, takes effort, and pays off richly. And I wouldn't have got that outside of the US. That's a great defense for uh, why it's necessary for postgraduates to learn to teach, uh, and also for professors. Yeah, I think that it's, it's part of a, a terrible contradiction, again, in the incentive structure in the academy, which is teaching is educational, especially when the liberal arts are under such really savage attack across the Western world. Teaching should be a key metric, which in turn means that there should be less pressure for large amounts of production. 
I strongly believe it would be in everybody's interest if the metrics of excellence had to do with less production and higher quality. The bridge system is the worst place to plug this because of the ref, which means you have to churn out industrially something, even if you don't have much to say, at a much greater rate than the American. But it is global. It's universal. It means that you have a completely perverse incentive. The very thing which sustains us, the liberal arts, relies on teaching undergraduates. And teaching undergraduates in professional terms, tragically, doesn't get us very far. And so I think that we really would benefit collectively from a real rethink of our institutional structures and our incentives. It's certainly an unfortunate situation where many people now just see teaching as like an obligation that they do not really want to do and therefore it doesn't help and but one encouraging people to engage in the topics. And I think that's perfectly fair enough because of a very tight label market. I feel profoundly Marxist about the state of um, our profession at the moment. We have got an extremely tight labor market. We have collectively lost out big time in the shift away from tenure in a, a cutthroat world where you can actually, as a university administration, get away with what would have been murder until the very recent past, which is paying very, very good, very committed people, very little, because it's a question of passion. People don't go into academia to have large jobs. If they're lucky, they might have very small ones, right? Um, and they take advantage of passion and the fact that people's career paths close down as they dedicate their 20s to this. And we have collectively lost out by administrations looking at this and saying, great, that means we can get cheap labor while we charge undergraduates in US private institutions, 50, $55,000, $60,000 a year. I mean, this is a money-making machine, but it's extremely bad for us. It's bad for our undergraduates and it's a net negative, which means that the liberal arts is really I think collapse around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it certainly isn't good for the, the longevity of humanities and social sciences and everything, all the positives that come with those, those research fields. And it's personally on an individual level, extremely grueling to know that there is something which is, and teaching is really the most useful thing most of us can do. And yet, it does not advance us professionally one iota. If there was ever an example of a perverse incentive, this is it. And I would not be saying this even had I not had the luxury of having had a book and a job. There's a certain amount of pant to what I'm saying because I have the luxury of being able to say it. And earlier in my career, teaching was something I would have liked to have been better at and more committed to but there was this permanent tension. There's that which is useful and there's that which is vital for my professional advancement. Caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. And I guess in that sense as well, so similar to previous conversations I've had on writing is that people often don't dedicate too much time to researching and understanding pedagogy and how to improve it. 
because there is such minimal incentive to to basically be a good teacher that you're actually focusing mostly on doing research and therefore the the, the outcome in that pedagogical sense is not often the best best possible outcome for everyone involved no but also um brutal honesty is that very few people in our field and go into it saying my lifelong dream is to teach undergraduates. That's just a truth. People go into what we do for the intellectual excitement, for the experiences of wholly different um, or exciting cultures. And this applies also where if you're in Mexico City, it's not just um, foreigners. If you're in Mexico City, going out of Mexico City is actually quite often rather adventurous too and going to a very different world. And so these are the personal incentives I think why most people go into our job. This brings me to the Mark including question quite well, which is so implicitly throughout this conversation, we assume that this history matters. Um, so history of the 20th, of 20th century Mexico, as well as your specific focus on, on revolutionary Mexico. So I was wondering if we could uh, if you could respond to that explicitly. So why does this history matter? This, and if you want to extend that to why does 20th century history of Mexico matter? Okay. Um, you could do that really in um, five words. Um, Ayotzinapa, um, the Lagunes family of Veracruz, and Vladimir Putin's Russia. I, there is a rewinding of history in Mexico which the past does help us understand, and through understanding goes beyond mere sort of intellectual agreement and enjoyment. And then there is a comparative heft that in we are seeing around the world right now, systems which are authoritarian with a democratic veneer, and Mexico really does help us understand that, because Mexico did it earlier and in some ways better than most of the rest of the world. So I'll conclude there. Uh... So thank you very much, Paul, for joining us. And hopefully, as we concluded with there about the importance of history, this uh, interview and podcast, as well as the rest of the work from the Scottish Centre for Global History, will help contribute to creating a more considerate and inclusive world as we begin to understand the lives of the people around us. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. That was really enjoyable.